After captivating readers with her debut memoir, Reading Lolita in Tehran, Azar Nafisi returns with her fifth book, Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. Nafisi implores the reader to look to the power of literature as America wrestles with censorship in the aftermath of the Trump presidency. In our conversation with Azar Nafisi, she makes her case for us to be diligent in our pursuit of defending our freedom, to read books that challenge us, encourage our growth, and calls to play in the limitless waters of imagination. I'm Denny. And I'm Veronica. Stay with us for another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzy'sbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Pie Class. We're your host. My name is Denny. And I am Veronica. And we are, I think the podcast gods just rained on us today. <laughs> we are over the moon. Oh, man. We, we have an amazing show for you all today. We are joined by none other than the amazing author, Azar Nafisi. Uh, she is the author of the multi-award winning New York Times bestseller, Reading Lolita in Tehran, as well as Things I've Been Silent About and The Republic of Imagination. Formerly a fellow at John Hopkins University's Foreign Policy Institute, she has taught at Oxford and several universities in Tehran, and she is currently a Centennial Fellow at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service. Nafisi has written for publications that include the New York Times, the Washington Post, the New Republic, and Wall Street Journal. She currently lives in Washington, D.C., and today she is on our show to talk about her newest book, which is Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. Welcome to the show, Ms. Nafisi. How are you doing today? Well, um, thank you for having me at your, to, to your show. You know, I wanted to tell you that um, I love the name Vulgar Genius. <laughs> <laughs> that is so. <laughs> it, 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 it coincides um, very much with read dangerously. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's the way to live. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. <laughs> dangerously and read dangerously. Yes, yes. Well, we enjoyed every single letter that made a word mm -hmm. in this book of yours. Um, it was a pleasure to read it. When we found out that you were releasing this book, um, I immediately was like, we have to try to see if we can get her on the show. And um, luckily you said yes. And so um, we are internally grateful to have you here with us. So we're going to just jump right on in to talk about this wonderful book that you've written. Um, I uh, came upon reading Lolita in Tehran in 2009, and I loved it so much that I even started a book club just to get my friends to read it. Oh. Um, your book made me realize that I was not reading nearly enough and that it was totally possible. It was totally possible to fall in love with the country without ever visiting it with the way that you, you spoke about Tehran. Um, and going through both reading Lolita and read dangerously, it reminds me of a statement made by a former guest of ours that we must critique those things that we love. Uh, and living both in Iran and now the United States, you have continued to do just that by addressing one of the growing problems of censorship of literature. How have you allowed yourself to continue to find the fire to not only look to the future with hope but to also look to the past and find space for revision of ideals and beliefs. Wow, <laughs> that, that is great. Um, yeah, um, 
whenever I feel desperate, I go to writing and reading uh, because, you know, in reality, it's very difficult to control reality. A lot of things like right now, the war uh, in Ukraine, um, uh, in this country, the elections in 2016, uh, all of these things were out of our control. So how would you uh, gain control? I feel that through telling the story from your perspective and thereby uh, that reality will be your reality not someone else's uh, so for me um, the way I have survived is to have hope in expressing uh, my feelings and emotions in a way that can connect to others um, now it it becomes uh, really part of my na nature. You know, when I talk about hope, I'm not talking about optimism. I'm talking about something that Václav Havel talked about. He said that um, hope is not optimism. Hope is um, not the conviction that something will turn out well, but it is the certainty that it makes sense no matter what the outcome is. And that is how I feel. I don't know if my writing would change anything, but I know that it makes sense, that it gives meaning to life and that we need to do the right thing without looking for rewards. We, need, we just need to do the right thing. And uh, great writing, that is what it's all about. It is about individuals' um, search for uh, integrity and, 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 and identity. And so um, for me, I always have hope as long as I can write and read and connect to others. Mm. You have a way of explaining books to the readers that make us want to read all the books you have mentioned in your book. I have, I feel like I have went on the journey of every character that you've spoken in the book. I have not read all of them, but I've read some. Um, when Veronica and I established Vulgar Geniuses, we had a goal to highlight uh, by POC authors, but never we imagined that we would allow to, <laughs> that we would be allowed to speak to you. <laughs> How does it feel after writing this quartet of books? Um, your reader stayed with you all throughout this journey that you are getting the same type of, I guess, reception from the same readers like Veronica that you had from 2009 up to now. Well, that is the amazing thing about uh, writing and reading, about imagination, how it connects people. Um, not because you live next door or you have uh, or your colleagues or anything like that. It connects you to people you should be connected to because those people share the same passion. So I might have never seen Veronica, but there are these invisible connections between people who share the same interests, who share the same passions. And reading um, makes it possible uh, for you to uh, have a relationship with these people. Uh, I always call readers um, intimate strangers because while they are strangers, I mean, how much we know about one another, we know almost nothing. I mean, I know almost nothing about you, but I immediately feel this connection because we read because we share the same book and reading is a very um, intimate act. It's you and the book, you know, and uh, uh, it, uh, so for me, that connection is the most important thing. Um, we keep talking about the other. We keep talking about how we need to respect others, but writing by nature is about others. Mm -hmm. It is an investigation. You need to come out of yourself and look at the others, go under the skin of others. Uh, Margaret Atwood was asked, um, how do you write? She said, I feel as if there are voices from um, a distant village beckoning to me. 
I feel like there's a bloody cleaver in the middle of the living room. And I say, hmm, what's that bloody cleaver doing there? It needs to be investigated. So both writing and reading is not about what we already know. It is about what we, all, what we don't know. We want to investigate. It is a process of investigation. And that it arouses the reader's curiosity. The reader, like Alice uh, in Wonderland, likes to run after that white rabbit, you know, and jump down the hole without knowing where she's going. She doesn't uh, presuppose that um, this hole should have certain conditions, otherwise she wouldn't go. So when you read a great book, you don't have any preconditions. You jump down the hole of that book. And then lo and behold, you find the wonderland and you find others who have also been jumping and running after the white rabbit. Hmm. I, I like that idea of, that curiosity that drives us to find out what's inside of a book. And we know so often that there are many people who would prefer us not to, uh, which is why we're having this conversation today. And you've written uh, a, a few memoirs, and um, but this one was done in epistle form as a series of five letters to your father. In your last letter, you write about your time, um, in your first letter, I'm sorry, in your first letter, you write about your time living in Iran, being under the rule of Ayatollah Khomeini when he issued the fatwa against writer Salman Rushdie. Khomeini said that Rushdie deserved death because his book mocked the prophet Muhammad and Islam. When thinking about how religion is used in this way of saying that Rushdie's work was blasphemous, would you agree that it was a way for community to utilize propaganda to push an agenda of controlling the ideas that could essentially keep people free? Exactly. But before I go there, because that's a very important point, um, I, we were talking about curiosity and I was reminded of Nabokov telling his students, curiosity is in subordination in its purest form. Mm -hmm. It is in subordination because uh, you, you want to question, you want to discover, and through that you might change. And uh, it is always anti-establishment curiosity, I feel. Um, and um, uh, what you said is completely how I uh, felt that uh, uh, the fatwa was a way of propaganda for, for political control. Uh, you know, uh, that book is not actually about Islam. Uh, it is, as Drushti talks about it, he says it is a critique of the West. And it is about migration, it's about fragmentation, it's about the kind of world we live in today. And, you know, one thing that the case of Rushdie brought to my mind was this man had nothing but his pen. I mean, he had no weapons. Uh, he had no political or uh, any other kind of power. How is it that someone who has so much military power, so many weapons um, is ruling over uh, this land. What makes him so afraid of the writer that he wants to exterminate him, that he cannot live with him, you know? And that is what ha keeps happening to writers in different parts of the world. It's not just Rushdie. Rushdie's case became well known, and and you know it became a metaphor for um, how writers are treated. They are scared. The establishment is scared of writing because great writing is about truth. Baldwin, uh, Margaret Atwood, and David Grossman, three writers in this book, uh, call themselves witnesses as writers. You witness the truth, and truth is always dangerous because if you don't speak it, you're complicit. You cannot remain silent once you know the truth. And uh, in this way, uh, writing will always stand up to power. So when, when I was reading that part, it reminded me so much 
of the time when the Philippines was under martial law and the former President Marcus had killed um, Senator Benigno Aquino Jr. because he was also a great writer. The same thing happened, the same thing is happening now when Maria Reza won that Nobel Peace Prize for Journalism under President Duterte's um, reign. So that reminds me so much of like the power of writing and how, like you said, these people have nothing. You know, they're against these leaders, but these writers only have their pens. These leaders are so afraid of the truth because once the truth is out, then they lose all their power. So I was just wanting to, you know, reinforce that, that thought that I, I had those thoughts while reading this book and how powerful literature can really be, hence the censorship and the banning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, that sort of gives me hope. Every totalitarian mindset, no matter where they are, whether they are in a theocracy like Iran, um, a communist country like China, or um, as uh, we see the trends uh, in America. I mean, uh, we see these totalitarian mindsets uh, becoming very active in America. Always these mindsets, the first things they attack are women, minorities, and culture. Mm -hmm. These three become the canaries in the mind, you know, you want to know um, where, how much freedom there is in any country, you go to these three. And uh, the leaders try to do everything, the totalitarian uh, leaders try to do everything to silence these groups. But we always think that they're doing it from a position of power, but it is not from a position of power. It is from a position of fear. Mm. They are really, really afraid of us. They are so afraid that they're ready to kill you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And once we know this, we know how much power we have. And we become hopeful. Because right now in Iran, it is women who are at the forefront of the struggle uh, against this regime, you know. And uh, for 43 years, the regime has done everything in its power and it could not make women retreat. Mm. And uh, it's true of women everywhere, actually. Um. I, you know, with what you just said, it just makes me think of, you know, the reason why that fear is there is because the writer, the person who is questioning what's going on is the person who can see that there is a person behind the curtain trying to control everything. They can see what's going on, right? And so the person who is trying to control everything does not want the people to know because then the people are no longer ignorant and will no longer follow or or just continue sometimes they and themselves following in fear because it's easier for them to just stay back and not do anything because they just want to be able to live to see another day but sometimes that does not always uh, happen and unfortunately we are seeing um, our country going through uh, this in in a in a way that I, I I in my lifetime has not uh, seen it done here in the United States, and it really harkens to us having to really stand behind those who write, like you and all the other writers uh, who are writing, to show what is important and what is going on in in the country. Otherwise, you know, the person behind the curtain will maintain control. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it is to their advantage to keep people ignorant. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see two examples today. One is in this country and during the former president's reign, you know, how uh, they tried to uh, replace truth with lies on an everyday basis. And you see it in terms of Putin and the war in Ukraine and how they have all sorts of access to all kinds of propaganda and they're using it all. James Baldwin used to say, uh, ignorance allied with power 
is the worst enemy of justice. Mm. And uh, that is why we need to read and write. That is why we need you guys to amplify the voices of truth. We need people to create subversive groups, book groups, you know, to, um, I, I really wish that we could have subversive book groups in um, libraries and bookstores and especially schools mm. and debate, debate, uh, what are we giving our young people? Yes, we're taking away from them the power to think independently. And if the school is not going to give it, you go and create your own group and read as much as you can and discuss, bring it to the public domain, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, shed light to it so yes. that people would pay more attention to mm -hmm. it. Yeah. So writing to your father was very intimate. I was I was inspired to do it for my son because right now he's two years old and oh. yeah and and he loves he loves to read he loves to be read to um how was it growing up well with a very influential and distinguished parents and how can we as parents and adults allow the growth of knowledge about the world with compassion and sincerity at the heart of it well, you know, one of the things about my father that I always appreciated was that he always treated my brother and I as if we were his equal. He never talked down to us, you know. And uh, the other thing was that he left me this legacy by when I was very young, I was about three and a half years old when he started telling me stories. And um, he was very, I mentioned in the book that he was very democratic in the way he told his stories. One night we were with our epic poet, Ferdowsi. The next night we'd go to France with the little prince. The next night to, uh, to England with Alice in Wonderland. The next night to in United States with Charlotte's Web, to Denmark with Little Match Girl. So I learned when I was very young that uh, I can stay in my little room in Tehran and the whole world will come to me through storytelling. And the, the stories uh, became a sort of a portable world, portable home that I could take with me everywhere. Because when I was 13, again, I had to leave my country and go uh, to a strange place, uh, and it was very scary. Uh, but I took with me um, three books, two by our classical writers, Rumi and Hafez, and one by a feminist uh, Iranian woman. And uh, that way I felt that I was taking with me the best of Iran. And when I came to England and later to America, I made a home for myself uh, before become, having an actual physical home. I had a home in the writers from these countries, in the writers, in the artists, in the musicians. I first knew these countries through my imagination and then in actuality. And uh, I thank my father especially for that, uh, for... Uh, bringing me stories uh, and uh, letting me connect. That's a precious gift because my mom is a retired teacher and ah. she always says it does not matter the age people always love to be read too and that is is very true because I used to work in education and it's one thing to read to you know elementary schools students, but it's another to read a simple story to a class full of high schoolers who you know normally would rather be on their phones and talking to their friends. And to start to read them a story, you start to notice how they kind of pull in, especially if the story is good, they're yeah. really going to pay attention to what's going on. And regardless of if someone is a reader or not, that act of reading to be read to helps build worlds within the person in themselves no matter no matter the age so that what a wonderful gift that is that your father that your father gave you 
Yeah, you know, um, I went through a war and a revolution, and God knows what I'm going through here. Um, I mean, you know, <laughs> through crazy elections and things like that, and we're still going through that phase, uh, you know. And uh, I literally don't know what I, how I could have survived without reading. People think I exaggerate, but I'm not exaggerating. And, you know, in Iran, when they took away from us um, the world, they, when we physically could not connect to the world, um, we connected to it through its golden ambassadors, through its artists, through its musicians, through its writers. They were... Um, uh, forbidden in Iran. So we read them underground. We listened to them underground. We watched the films underground. But we did it, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, it wasn't us who retreated. It was the regime who retreated. So while writing this book, besides the long walks between writing and a lot of ice cream, (laughs) how were you able to take care of yourself while going through this very tedious and heart-wrenching process of just writing all of this out. You know, the other day, my husband told me, if you're going to write another book, you go into that office and you won't come out until you finish because we can't take it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) He said... And, you know, my family tells me I go completely nuts when when I'm writing and uh, uh, I act crazy and um, do things. I I, I mean, I used to have a glass of brandy in one hand and a cigar (laughs) in the other and uh, walk around (laughs) the room like a crazy and I don't smoke. I can't inhale. I would have the cigar (laughs) chewing on it, you know. So I tell you, I really literally go go berserk. (laughs) There is so much anxiety. Uh, And there is a joy when you finish a passage or you like it, you think that this sentence really belongs here. Uh, But um, uh, it's hell. Yeah, I bet it is. Because not only like, when you yourself are writing and like you said you find a sentence or a paragraph and you're like yes this sounds so good I'm a good writer yes I can't wait for them to read it and you give it to the editor and they're like how about we uh take this out (laughs) (laughs) you're so proud of that that sentence what is what does that do to you when when that conversation happens yeah it's um fortunately for me, I know the kind of editor you're talking about. I was lucky. I mean, um, there were even some suggestions that I felt were good and that I should, like a good girl, uh, you know, not throw a tantrum. And, uh, <laughs> so, you know, but uh, that can be a problem. Uh, a friend of mine is currently having that problem and, and the editor keeps changing her Uh, language the style of writing and so she gets very angry and uh, she has this constant uh, uh, you know anxiety talking to her editor you know Uh, but I was lucky in both the editors I had. Uh, Toni Morrison which you which you write about in your in your book uh, she wrote that memory The deliberate act of remembering is a form of willed creation. It is not an effort to find out the way it really was that is research. The point is to dwell on the way it appeared and why it appeared in that particular way. You have been willing to take a magnifying glass to your life several times throughout the course of your work and share those memories with us. What has this constant act of remembering meant for you and your family's growth and understanding of perspective? You know, I, I'm reminded of the quotation from um, this uh, East European writer, Tezevan Todorov. Um, he says, only 
total obli only obli total oblivion calls for total despair mm. and memory is conclusive evidence that we have lived you know and uh, writing does not only stand up to um, uh, earthly powers to political power but it stands up to death itself because death is the end it, it there is it is absolute and uh, we cannot help it we we will all die so what becomes important is how we live not that I, we die and writing is preservation of something that it goes beyond your own past it becomes a communal sharing of moments because every moment we die mm. and every moment we we need to have conclusive evidence that we have lived you know and uh, art is uh, the best way of uh, preserving it uh, homer is still alive because we still read him um Living in the world for the last three years was not easy. We've been <laughs> dealing with the pandemic, <laughs> among other things. Um, and we have seen the worst of the privilege. Uh, where do you find the courage to speak for the, tr the truth and write about these matters? And how do you cope with all of these feelings of anger and fear and uncertainty and maybe even hopelessness? How do I stand up to all the things that are going on around us? How do you... Um, or how do you cope with, with those feelings that arise when thinking about... Uh, those, those feelings, I, I mean, uh, especially when I was living in the Islamic Republic, but over here as well, I feel angry a lot of times. I feel outraged a lot of times. But um, would James Baldwin, I agree that allowing anger and hate sort of eats you from in, it eats you from inside. Mm -hmm. That uh, you, uh, we all have, we see all this injustice done both in the country we love as well as in the world. And uh, it is um, natural to be angry. It is natural to hate uh, little children being bombed, you know. But the point is that we cannot become like our enemy. We should not allow our enemy to dominate our minds and hearts. When we hate, we are constantly thinking of the enemy. Mm. Mm -hmm. yep, and yep. that is very dangerous. And, and I saw this um, in the Ukraine war, how the Ukrainians acted. Um, Putin just drops bombs on them. What do they do? They call on the mothers of the captured soldiers and tell them, come and collect your son. Mm -hmm. They don't act like Putin. They don't become Putin by saying, okay, you killed us. We captured you. We're going to kill you. They're not going to do that. And I remember I mentioned it in my book, um, uh, you know, when Donald Trump was calling Nancy Pelosi, crazy Nancy and all sorts of names. She turns around and says, I pray for him. Hmm. And the guy... What can he say to that? Nothing. You know, <laughs> nothing. No, don't pray for me. You know, <laughs> but she doesn't come to his level. Mm -hmm. You know, and that is the important thing to keep your sense of integrity, your dignity. And I don't know about you guys, but for me, it is not simply political. It is existential. Yes, yes. When I was living in Iran, I was thinking that as a woman, as a teacher, as a writer, as a mother, as someone 
who believes in human rights, I cannot remain silent in the face of what is going on. It is an existential thing. I feel ashamed of myself when I do what they tell me to do. Mm-hmm. And I had to find ways of showing them that uh, I'm not being uh, uh, defeated by you. You did not take over me. And that, that is what scares them when you do not act like them. If you act like them, you not only become like them, but they're better than you mm-hmm. in hating. They're better than you in slander. Uh, so I, it's very hard. I mean, it's much easier to say it than to uh, act it, you know. But I try. And that is why I'm so hopelessly in love with James Baldwin. I think he is um, uh, so relevant to us today, not just for the critique of the oppressor, which is great at, but also for the way he refuses to be a victim, the way he refuses to give in to the enemy. Uh, And I think that uh, we should learn from him. We are still currently experiencing the aftershocks of our past presidency. Um, We are still communicating through elimination and not inclusion. You have posed a question to the reader on how we can change things. It's, and you said it's not through political positions and politics, but through one's attitude. You presented us a mirror, like you said, so we can examine ourselves and our own complicitness sometimes to the problem. Your answer to attitude change was through literature, using, is at re- using is it as resistance. How powerful is literature as resistance in changing certain attitudes so humans can empathize in a more humane worldview. Actually, you use the word empathize. Um, apart from curiosity, that is the other thing about uh, literature, that uh, it connects to others. It, um, you know, fiction is the most democratic form um, of writing uh, because uh, in fiction, every character Um, has a voice. You have to go under the skin. If you're a great writer, you go under the skin of each character and give voice to all of them, including the villain. You might not like some of those characters, but they have a voice. Mm -hmm. And you put the reader within the experience of these different voices. And through that experience, the reader makes her own judgments. So when I talk about literature, I'm not talking, I mention it in the book that I'm not talking about literature of resistance, but literature as resistance, because the mindset that literature creates is exactly opposite of the mindset of a totalitarian uh, person, a totalitarian individual. And that way, if from early childhood we learn through fiction to listen, to become curious. You know, Donald Trump was not at all curious about others. Oh no, not at all. <laughs> Zero percent. <laughs> he, had, he had already categorized who, and defined you. Mm-hmm. You're either with him or you're the enemy of the people. You know, and that is the exact opposite of the kind of mindset that imagination uh, brings, because that one is open. It is open even to the enemy. It does not excuse crimes, Mm -hmm. but it is open to understanding. It is more understanding than judgment. Mm -hmm. And that is why I think it remains subversive. Uh, Book banning uh, has been on the rise uh, in the United States, and it is the response of people in this country uh, because of fear. And it acts 
as diversion so that people can remain ignorant and avoid the truth where pain resides. Read dangerously uh, presented to its readers that if we don't confront these traumas, these other realities that we are not truly living. Um, besides the authors that you've mentioned in your novel, which works should we be consuming so that we can keep our promise of reading dangerously? Should you be consuming? Any, any suggestions that, other than the ones that you mentioned in, in the book that you, want, you wanted to talk about, but you said, okay, maybe, maybe not in this one. Or wow. may, have missed, may have missed the pages. Or is it just the entire library? Just go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you one thing. I'm so promiscuous when it comes to reading. I want to read so many different books and for so many different reasons. But um, uh, like, for example, when I was writing this book, um, uh, I wrote a chapter, which I later took out because it didn't really go well with the book, but I would like the book. It was Maria Varchas Leosa's Feast of the Goat. Mm. Um, I read, um, uh, what was the, oh yes. Um, all the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren, uh, because I wanted to understand the mechanisms of power uh, in, the, in the United States. Um, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. I, I think that is a really beautiful, marvelous novel that should be read uh, time and again. Um, I had a series of women in mind, uh, like um, Awakening, the novel Awakening, and I forgot the name of the author. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I can go on and on, uh, but um, that is the good thing about books. You can go on and on. You know? <laughs> An endless list. Yes. Uh, I would be remiss if, if we don't touch a little bit on this particular author in the book because she is my favorite and that is Zora Neale Hurston. Oh, and she's your favorite? I love her. Absolute... Yes, look, she has, she has a tattoo. Of... I have a tattoo. You That's do? I don't know. That is great. I think she, I mean, everyone, she's so famous now and everyone talks about her, but she's still not understood. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> um, in your book, you talk about your, um, your introduction into the works of Zora Neale Hurston by way of Alice Walker's piece in Miss Magazine in search of Zora Neale Hurston. Uh, it was published in 1978. And you stated that because of the revolution in Iran, you would not get the chance to read her work until two decades later. It seemed as if um, we both discovered their eyes were watching God around the same time. Uh -huh. <laughs> and often we see that when people talk about the greats in literature, which are usually men and they are usually white and sometimes English, uh, and for those who call themselves avid readers, uh, sometimes they refuse to venture into works of women who have elevated literature. What would you say to them to push them into a direction of making them become better readers by reading more women authors? Well, you know, uh, women authors were um, the precursors of uh, the novel. I mean, uh, some of the best novels in the whole wide world was written by women. And, and you know, uh, they were great in not only creating women characters, but men characters as well. Uh, writing and reading owes a great deal to women. And uh, anyone who uh, doesn't take uh, female writing as serious has lost a good chunk of experience, has not experienced life to the fullest, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I never had doubt uh, from the time of uh, Jane Austen to the time of Zora Neale Hurston to the time of Toni Morrison. I never had doubt that um, uh, women writers 
have also brought something because you see women um, have brought their own personal and private experiences into the novel. Men, uh, you before them, literature was uh, too, well, literature was not stiff, but men, uh, <laughs> <laughs> they're men. <laughs> They don't have that gentleness. <laughs> they don't bring, you know, it's not true of men writers, but it's true of most men that um, the outward life becomes important. Mm -hmm. uh, for some of them, it's difficult to express feelings and emotions, while uh, the novel uh, deals with feelings and emotions. The novel um, is about the individual. How could you talk about an individual without talking about uh, her heart? And, uh, you know, uh, so uh, both women characters in the novels, as well as women writers, become central to the health of the novel. What gives... Azar Nafisi happiness? Happiness for me is like uh, uh, freedom. Um, both of them have to be pursued, never achieved, you know. Uh, from eating an ice cream to watching <laughs> my <laughs> coffee ice cream, not just any ice cream. <laughs> Uh, from eating coffee ice cream to a good poem to watching my granddaughter um, say a new word, you know, all of this creates happiness. And read a good book always. Do, do you read to your granddaughter? Yes, she's only about 18 months. She was born last August, but she goes and brings the book. Aww. and. She doesn't understand it, but she likes to listen and she uh, sort of uh, points to the <laughs> pictures and the words. So, If you were still writing to your father, uh, what would be something that you would want to tell him about 2022? 2022. Well... 2022 is the time of transition. A lot of things need to change and uh, have to change. Uh, I'm both hopeful and anxious because uh, crisis in itself is not bad. It means that we are questioning the way we live. We're questioning what has been up to now considered established. Now there is a destabilization of, 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 the, of reality. But how we treat the crisis is the important thing. Would we act as you mentioned, some people are doing in this country right now, afraid to stand up uh, indifferent towards what is happening in the world. If we continue this trend of indifference and wanting to be complacent and just comfortable, you notice how nowadays I would tell my dad that this is the age of comfort. People constantly tell us they're not comfortable for the, with this. They're not comfortable with that. Well, hell, life is not comfortable. You know, there are moments of comfort, but why should you always be comfortable? You know, you need to look into the mirror and sometimes not like what you see and try to change it. So I tell my father, I have both hope and I have both, and as well as um, anxiety about which way 2022 will go. Well, we most certainly hope that um, that this this transition year uh, is one that will allow us to be able to grow um, better as a country, better as readers, just better as people in general. And um, we know that we're living also in a very uh, divisive time where people want to yeah. draw lines in the sand and and 
hold firm to where they are, but we hope that uh, with books such as yours and all the other ones that we've been given the pleasure and honor to be able to read will help us find the tools necessary with the empathy and the curiosity to go and do the work in order for this transition year to be something to transition to a more beautiful um, outlook of, of our future. So we've come to the part of our conversation uh, that we like to um, do with our guests. And that is, we, you know, we've asked you about books already that we need to consume, but what are, what are your, if not your top five favorite books of all time? (laughs) (laughs) But I'm promiscuous. (laughs) (laughs) It can be like the top five favorites of all time or the top five books that you're more most excited to read for this year? Well, I tell you about what I think is the mother of all stories. Okay. Uh, it is uh, Shahrazad's uh, 1001 Nights. Mm-hmm. And talking about women's storytellers, <laughs> she's, the, uh, she's the one who started it, uh, you know. Um, but uh, honest to God, this is the most difficult question you ask me. Well, I'm right now reading um, uh, this book, um, which is called The Mirror, Mirror of the Heart. Um, it is a book of poetry translation from uh, Persian language. It's a thousand years of Persian poetry written by women. And uh, when you read these women a thousand years ago, you'll be amazed. We think we're modern and we know this and that, and we can express our feelings. Those women knew what feeling meant, you know, it's really beautiful. And and it's translated by a great um, poet and and translator, um, Dick Davis. Uh, I'll tell you the weird ones. I mean, not the weird ones, but the ones that maybe people are not thinking of. Um, the, I don't know if you know uh, of this Czech illustrator and writer. Uh, he writes a lot of um, beautiful, beautiful uh, children's stories. Um, uh, and uh, he wrote a book recently called Nikki and Vera. It's about uh, this guy who... Um, uh, helped children escape Holocaust. Uh, so uh, that is another book. Um, now, there is a writer who lived in the 1930s, Nathaniel West. Uh, his novel, he wrote a novel called A Cool Million, which is um, uh, an American version of what an autocrat can be. It is both hilarious and, uh, well, frightening as well. Uh, So, and he wrote another novel called um, The Day of Locust, uh, which uh, I uh, liked. Um, You know, I was thinking that after this um, uh, conversation ends and I go back to my uh, room, uh, then I'll remember, I say, why didn't I say this? <laughs> why didn't I say that? <laughs> we can always add it in post. You can record it and just send it to us and we'll can I do that? <laughs> but, and, and I was also reading a novel that is very much fun, um, uh, Americana. Oh, yeah, she's really uh, both serious and fun Mm -hmm. at the same time, you know, so I enjoyed it. There is a book I have here on my desk, um, Ten Journeys. Uh, It is about the organization pen uh, that um, is uh, about um, the the organization is about freedom of expression Mm -hmm. and they have um, 
branches all over the world. And this is a memoir of that organization. So I'm reading a lot of different things. They don't have anything to do with one another. How fast do you read? Like if, if someone were to give you a book, are you killing it in a day or are you- I read slow? fast, mm -hmm. but, but I go back. And a, a lot of times the books I like, I read several times. Mm. Do you have a preference on nonfiction or fiction or poems? Which one do you do you tend to gravitate towards if you're reading for, let's say, oh, I want to clear my mind about something? Well, fiction, fiction. I read. But uh, there are a lot of nonfiction books that I love. Uh, Walter Isaacson's uh, uh, biographies of Einstein, for example, or Steve Jobs, I find really interesting. Historical books, mm. I very much like, uh, you know. Um, you are currently in living in DC and I miss it so much. <laughs> <laughs> you you do? Yes, I, I stayed there. I used to live there for a few months. My sister and, and uh, her family, along with my mom, they live in Baltimore. Um, oh, so they're, these two cities are uh, so close. Yeah, yeah, they're next next door. But um, before the pandemic, you know, we travel up there often, and I really miss it. So will you just tell DC, I said hello. <laughs> I miss I it. Will, no, you have to come to DC yourself and say hello. <laughs> that's the and goal. when you come to DC, you call me. Okay, that's yeah. the plan. You don't have to tell us twice. I'll, I'll bring you loads and loads of coffee ice cream, I promise. Oh. <laughs> you come, we'll go and uh, coffee ice creaming around town. Yay! That sounds so much fun. I hope the pandemic would end. God, they were talking about it being on the rise again in Europe. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I, I, I am a nurse and I'm very tired. Um, so I, I, like I always tell, like you know, our authors and our listeners, I do, I do this podcast and I do this, um this thing with Veronica out of like love and passion for books but my day job <laughs> I, take, <laughs> yep, I, I, I take care of other people so yes that would be great and to to be to be able to travel to see you yeah. and we'll, we'll talk about empathy I mean your job calls for empathy more than any other job mm -hmm. yeah and sometimes it is you know, like after a while, it's like, that's why I'm like, I like reading books like yours because it always makes me check myself. Is my empathy real or is my empathy just because of what I do? So, you know, so those things kind of like help me, help me get in check as a human being. If like I'm doing this certain things because I'm expected to do it or is it because of, you know, existentially, this is what a human being should do all the time. Not because of what my job is supposed to be hmm. it's a it's an everyday battle <laughs> well as long as it's a battle it means you're on the right track yes. there we go oh. thank you i needed that <laughs> so a little bit of validation <laughs> well thank you so much again thank it has you. been an honor uh, for you to have uh grace us with your with your wonderful presence we hope that everyone oh, thank will go you. out and uh, read your, your wonderful book. Read all of your books. Just send all the money to Azar. <laughs> Just give it, give it to her. <laughs> she needs it for ice cream, y'all. She needs it for ice cream. And that brandy. Come on. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, that, that I have not been drinking for a long time. I should write another book. <laughs> Well, thank you. We don't want to uh, keep you any longer. We know it's late, but just, just thank you for all of this. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I very much enjoyed myself. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Have a good night. You Bye. too. And best of everything. Thank you.
If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Let us explain. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started.